Father, we do depend on you for our life, for our breath, for our eternity. As we enter into this gathering today, as we continue in worship and open our hearts and our minds unto your word, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would minister into our hearts through your word with the precision that only you can do. We thank you for the beautiful truth that it is only in Jesus, your power and yours alone that can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. We praise you, Lord Jesus, as the one who paid our debt and raised our lives with you from the dead. And so as we meditate on these truths today, would you help us to be encouraged, be strengthened, and be transformed by the power of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Holy Spirit, would you do your work in this time today that we may be edified and built up in all that is said and done and that all of it would bring you and you alone glory and honor and praise. And we pray all of these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning and welcome to our Sunday morning worship gathering with Cross Community Church. It's so great to be with you. If you are visiting with us, my name is Dave Eatman. I serve here on our pastoral team, and it's my blessing and privilege to be able to lead our time together of worship in the Word today. As we've recently completed a study in the book of Colossians. We prepare to begin a new study in the book of James in the fall. We're taking a few weeks here in the late summer to revisit the core elements of our strategy as a church that can be summarized in four words, gather, grow, give, and go. And as we look at each of these, we want to see how each element is informed by the gospel, by the good news that even though we were dead in our sin, Jesus made a way. By entering into our experience as a man, by living the perfect sinless life we were unable to, by taking upon himself the due penalty of our sin and death, by raising again to new life to show forth his ultimate victory over sin and death, in the grave and by returning to the Father to intercede for us and to await his return for his church. Last week, Pastor Taylor took us through the first of our strategies in gospel-shaped gathering. And we saw that it is because of Jesus, because of the glorious truth of the gospel, that we have confidence to gather all the more as we see the day of his return drawing near. And this week, we turn our attention to gospel-shaped growth. Our mission as a church, the Great Commission, is displayed prominently on the wall as you walk in the front door to preach the gospel and make disciples. And our desire is to see it on display just as prominently in all that we set our hearts and minds to do for Christ. We understand that growth, discipleship, is to be a foundational element of our life in Christ. And yet, unfortunately for many, true discipleship has not been a part of their experience. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, if you have been in Christ a year, five years, maybe even 10 or 20 years, and have never actually been discipled, I would be willing to bet there would be hands up all over this room. 
In fact, it was 24 years ago this November that I began a walk with Jesus and my hand would have to be among those raised. And while many do certainly eventually grow to maturity through our own study and obedience and gathering with the body, those spiritually formative years for a babe in Christ are just as critical as the physically formative years are for a newborn. Many of you who, like me, were never discipled, possibly learned on your own, your pursued growth, and you've reached the level of maturity you're at today in spite of a lack of discipleship. And yet, how many more have started the journey with Christ but are not sitting here today because they never were given a foundation in those early formative years? Our strategy regarding growth is expressed in our membership covenant as follows. It says, we will grow. We will meet with one another with increasing frequency as the day of the Lord draws near, stirring up one another to love and good works. We will bear one another's burdens. We will humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another in church discipline and restoration. We will strive to maintain personal and family devotions, and together we will search the scriptures, devoting ourselves to teaching, fellowship with other believers, the breaking of bread, and prayer. There are a multitude of passages we could have gone to throughout scripture to visit and see uh, what scripture has to say about Christian growth. But today we're going to look at this topic through Paul's letter to Ephesus and see how Paul addresses discipleship here as we look at how a shared commitment to gospel mission compels us to utilize our God-given giftedness to move the bride of Christ towards maturity. And that begins with the foundation of a shared calling. So in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is believed to be writing the letter to the church at Ephesus, which would be modern-day Turkey. Around AD 62, Paul has been imprisoned in Rome at the hand of the Jews, and he's taking this opportunity, among other things, to write letters to the various churches, and he writes one to the book of, at uh, the church at Ephesus. And this book really could be divided into two halves, the first half being a grand three-chapter-long rehearsal of the beautiful truth and reality of the gospel. In fact, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians contain only one command, and that command is remember. Remember who you were outside of Christ. Remember what Christ has done on your behalf, and remember who you are called to be. And the second half of Ephesians, where we pick up today in chapter four, then begins the so what section. It's been said of the first three chapters of Ephesians that they are the beautiful music of the gospel and that the final three chapters are the dance. And just as we naturally move to a good beat, almost on reflex, the commands and instructions that begin in chapter four should be the natural response of a life of a believer to the beautiful, magnificent reality of what Jesus has done for us and what he is doing in us. So let's look together at Ephesians chapter four, beginning in verse one. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul writes, therefore, because of the beautiful reality of the gospel of what Jesus has accomplished for all those who would believe, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you, 
walk in a manner worthy of the calling. If you are in Christ today, it is because you have been called by him. The beautiful reality of that fact is that you have been set free from sin and death, past, present, and future. And our effectual calling is the foundation for growth that binds us together as a church. The fact that those who belong to Christ and have gathered together as the, as the body of Cross Community Church are made up of men and women, young and old, that have been called to flee a life of sin and death and embrace a life of freedom and peace. And it's precisely because of our newfound freedom that our trajectory for growth begins with a call to walk worthily. Notice Paul doesn't say be worthy. None of us are worthy. None of us could be worthy. None of us can measure up to that standard. No, Paul says walk worthily. In other words, suitably in a way that most accurately reflects the reality of who you are in Christ. A reality that says you have been set free from sin and its power over you. A reality that says you hold an irrevocable claim to eternal life with the Father. A reality that leads us to being unwaveringly grateful for the vicarious sacrifice of Jesus. As Taylor shared with us last week, we see our fallen nature in the commands and the prohibitions of Scripture as these are given where our natural bend draws us to not do something that God needs to command us to do or to do something that God desires to prohibit us to do. We naturally bend the other way. And thus here, we see Paul urging us to seek growth in Christ because in our fallen state, our predisposition is not to. If I know that my sin, past, present, and future has been completely expunged and forgotten by God, if I know that I'm eternally secure in his grip, my fallenness tempts me to pursue after the desires of my flesh and the pleasures of sin because I'm forgiven anyway. But the gospel calls us instead to reject that tendency in favor of honoring Christ with our lives. And if you're sitting here today identifying with that, know that you are in good company. As Paul is urging all of us, unified by a shared calling from a life of sin and to a life in Christ, not to stay where we are, not to give in to and pursue our flesh, but to pursue ongoing growth to maturity. And so from a foundation of shared calling, we find then a unity in our shared identity. Verse two, as Paul begins to unpack just what a maturing follower of Christ exhibits. Paul writes, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. When our hearts and our minds are settled in the reality that we have been completely set free from the penalty of sin and its power over us, and when we realize that we're in relationship with our brothers and sisters to our right and to our left, because we share in that glorious reality, we have the opportunity before us to experience a unity the world cannot know. We understand intuitively, I think, that shared experience, shared culture breed 
connectedness. That's not a new or novel concept. The problem enters when we still place ourselves as a priority. Our wants, our needs, our desires above others. And that's what we naturally do as human beings. We don't have to teach a child to demand their own way. They do that naturally. We have to teach them just the opposite. And Jesus himself gives us the most extreme example of putting the needs of others above our own. We see from what Paul is calling us to here in this text, our hearts are filled with pride, demanding to be seen, yet Jesus, as God, humbled himself into the form of a servant. We are quick to condescend towards others and be impatient when we're not getting our way, and yet Jesus, time and again, responds to and rebukes our failures and our shortcomings and our sin with gentleness and care. Our default is to shut out those who are not like us, those who we vehemently disagree with, or even those who are against us. And yet, Jesus models a love even for our enemies in demonstrating his sacrificial love for us when we were his enemy. And not only has Jesus modeled this perfectly, he empowers us through his spirit to do the same. As a follower of Christ, we will never begin to move forward on a trajectory of maturity until we are first willing to die to self, to place others' needs ahead of our own, to eagerly strive for unity with our brothers and our sisters in Christ. If you are in Christ, there is so much more church that unifies us than there is that divides us. And Paul lays that out for us here. He says, we have one body. We are collectively one body of Christ under our head. We share in one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God that indwells the believer. We have one hope that is that hope of eternal life in the presence of the Father because of Jesus. We have one Lord, Jesus himself. We have one faith, our faith in him and him alone, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We share in one baptism, that symbolic demonstration that we have died to that old way of life. We have entered into new life and in covenant with his church. And we do this all under one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. And I don't think it's coincidental, church. This is a sevenfold oneness. The number seven in scripture is the number of perfection, completeness, wholeness. And what we see here is what we are called to, to perfectly represent. The unity that we are called to represents the unity that perfectly exists in Father, Son, and Spirit, the tri-unity of God. Jesus himself prayed for our oneness in his high priestly prayer as he was about to go to the cross and complete his work on our behalf. He has been praying for his disciples that are there with him. And then in the middle of his prayer, his attention shifts to us. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The perfect oneness that Jesus prays for, the perfect oneness that Paul urges is predicated on a trajectory of growth and maturity that learns to set aside 
pettiness, and selfishness, and earnestly pursue unity with our brother and sister in Christ. And whereas we find oneness in our shared experience of being called into the body of Christ, we also find diversity in our shared giftings and how God has uniquely empowered each of us in our place in his body. So Paul continues in verse seven, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. We see straight away here that not only was it an act of grace bestowed upon us that saved us and brought us into relationship with God, it is also an act of, of grace that Christ bestows upon us in uniquely equipping each and every individual member of his body. And here we see an interesting parenthetical entry by Paul that almost may seem out of place or unnecessary. In verse 7, Paul's telling us that Christ has gifted each of us as an act of his grace. Verse 11, he begins to unpack what some of those gifts are. But what do we do with verses 8 through 10? Paul begins it with a therefore, so we know it must be connected. If you have cross-references in your Bible, you'll see that Paul is quoting Psalm 68, 18. However, in verse 8, we, we look back from verse 8 to Psalm 68:18 and in the Psalms, and we initially are left with a quandary. Because Psalm 68:18 reads, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Notice the difference. Did Paul just forget what the scripture said? Paul just manipulating the words for his own use? In our text, Paul quotes the passages, gave gifts to men, whereas David in Psalm 68 says, gifts were received by men. This is where historical context is so important for us because in the ancient world, including the time of David, was a time of conquest. As a king and his army would conquer a nation or a people, gifts would be given to the king, either as the spoils of war or as a tribute from a conquered people. This is what's in view in Psalm 68, as David's using the metaphor, the analogy of an earthly campaign of a conquering king to illustrate that God would ultimately conquer our ultimate enemy in sin and death and reign supreme. And as so often the case, the words penned by the psalmist or the prophet have both a present dimension for their immediate context and a future dimension that will find its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And so it is with Psalm 68, because historically we also know that when a king would receive spoil or tribute from a conquered nation, he would in turn divide the spoils with his people. What's in view with Paul's change of verb here then is the fact that Jesus, in his work of humiliation of walking the earth as man and dying for our sin, and his exaltation of resurrection and ascension back to the Father has become the ultimate and final conqueror, the ultimate and final conquering king 
over that enemy of death. And as a result, he shares the spoils of his conquest and his victory with his people in the giving of gifts to his church. And so the change of verb by Paul here is an ultimate reflection of the fulfillment of the promise in our conquering King, Jesus. We see several of those gifts listed here, apostles, originally an office held by those that were trained directly and commissioned directly by Christ to plant his church. Today, not an ongoing office, but an ongoing gift to plant and further the church of Christ here on this earth. Prophets, also originally an office held by those who spoke on behalf of God, today carries forward as a gifting to speak boldly the truths of God into our world and to our culture. Evangelists, which being a general call for all of us to an evangelism, evangelists uh, that are gifted as such have a specific zeal to see the gospel proclaimed and equip the church to fulfill the Great Commission. Shepherds, the office of pastor, elder, overseer, called to protect and guide and lead the church, and teachers called to present the truth of God and urges church on to maturity. It's important that we understand here that this is only one place that gifts are referenced in Scripture. This is not an exhaustive list we find them in other places throughout Scripture, namely in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Unless you see this list and say, I don't really see where my giftedness lies or how I'm supposed to be involved in the kingdom, let's look at how Peter captures the same concept in 1 Peter 4. Peter writes, as each has received a gift. That means each and every one of us, if we are in Christ, we are to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as the one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. It's almost like Peter gives us the bookends from the most visible of gifts, the one who speaks, to the most behind the scenes of gifts, to the one who serves with the same exhortation for both and every gift in between, steward it well to serve one another and to glorify our God. And so from a foundation of shared calling, a unity that we find in our shared identity and a diversity that we see through our shared gifting, we arrive at a gospel-shaped growth. With all of the buildup, Paul finally releases the why. Why do we share in the foundation of a calling to Christ? Why do we pursue unity based on our new life in Jesus? Why do we each seek to utilize the giftedness that we have been given by our conquering king? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We don't grow, church, simply by doing better. 
We don't go simply, grow simply by trying harder. We yield to the power of the Holy Spirit within us and allow him to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. We set aside pettiness and pursue oneness with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We employ our giftedness in service to one another to labor together towards maturity, to be actively involved in equipping one another, to display the radiance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its power unto salvation for all who would believe. When I was growing up, I remember uh, often going to the grocery store with my mom and there was a gentleman that worked in the grocery store that we went to. He bagged groceries and sometimes worked the cash register and he was an adult. He had an adult body, but uh, something had happened with his development and his head had not grown at the same rate. And so his head was really more the size of a child's head while he had an adult body. And I remember as a child seeing that and not really understanding what I was looking at but I knew enough to know that something wasn't right, that he had not developed properly, that he hadn't grown properly, that something was not the way that it should be. And if I can take that illustration, church, and reverse it, when we have a head, a perfect head in Christ that represents the fullness of God and a body that has not matured, but that is lagged behind and still is immature, the body of a child, when, when, that, when the world around us sees that, they say something's not right. Something has not developed the way it should. Something, there's something wrong and inhibited with that growth. So what does gospel-shaped growth look like? Paul shows us here in the text. First, mature followers of Christ who experience doctrinally rooted unity. Not carried about by every wind of doctrine, not following after the latest fad or thing, but rooted in the core fundamental foundational doctrines of the faith. I love the fact that as Cross Community Church, we follow a framework when it comes to doctrine of essentials, distinctives, non-essentials, and preferences. And what unifies us are those essentials of Orthodox Christianity, those distinctives of how we believe and function as a church. And we allow for liberty and freedom biblically informed on those non-essentials and preferences so that we can drive together towards unity in the foundational elements of the faith and for the sake of the mission. Mature followers of Christ experience true relational intimacy with Jesus. Not just a knowing who Jesus is, not just moving along and trying to do things that would align with what someone's supposed to do, but truly knowing Jesus by spending time with him regularly, by getting to know him and his desires for you, by not falling away from him in our sin, but falling towards him and embracing his grace and his new morning mercies. We see here, Paul says, to mature manhood, mature followers of Christ experience and exhibit genuine spiritual maturity. They adult for Jesus, not maintaining the status of a child, not continuing in, in pettiness, but giving into a life of selflessness and service on the behalf of others. And ultimately, they achieve the measure of the stature of fullness in Christ. Mature followers of Christ express the divine image. They allow the fullness of who Jesus is to shine forth through our lives as his divine image bearers 
and as witness to his glory. It's not about performance, church. It's about knowing who we are in Jesus and yielding to that, knowing that we don't do any of this to be his. We do this because we have been redeemed. We have been bought back by his precious blood and given a mission to make him known to the ends of the earth. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us that it's by grace and grace alone that we're saved. It's through our faith, not our works, lest any of us brag and boast about that. But verse 10 continues in saying, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Conversely, Paul shows us here what a lack of gospel-shaped growth looks like. It's immature followers of Christ who refuse to grow up. They remain as children in Christ, refusing to embrace the process of transformation into the image of his son. Immature followers of Christ resist the anchor of orthodoxy, following the shifting tides of progressive ideology rather than remaining anchored in the inspired and inerrant and infallible word. And immature followers of Christ remain gullible and naive, having no root or death depth in themselves so that they're easily led astray and deceived. A.W. Tozer captures our lack of growth this way. He says, the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. Gospel life, church, is surrendered life. Surrender of the old man to new life in Jesus. Surrender of our old desires to the desires of Jesus. Surrender of our work merely for temporal gain to the eternal work of Jesus and surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit that lives within us and desires to transform us. Notice how Paul concludes this section of chapter four, that truth, the word spoken in love to one another causes growth, that our cooperation together because of the gospel as applied to each of us working collectively together through all of us is what causes the body to experience growth and maturity. As we live a life of surrender, we allow the sacrificial love of Jesus to flow through us as conduits of his love for his church, which becomes the essential building block for the body of Christ. Jesus captures it this way in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you sacrificially, completely. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, that you are experiencing growth and maturity in me if you have love for one another. And one of the primary ways we show love for one another is to lay aside our selfishness and our pettiness and to lovingly invest the truth into each other's lives, to embrace our role and function in his body and to flourish in our giftings for the sake of one another. If you belong to Christ, you have a mission. Outside of these walls, that is to herald the good news that King Jesus has conquered our ultimate enemy of sin and death and now reigns supreme and he invites you into his kingdom. 
inside of these walls and within our community. That is to love our neighbor as ourselves, to seek to use the giftings we have been given to see a body of Christ that increasingly reflects the beauty and the glory of its head, Jesus. And so we ask ourselves the question as we wrap up our time today, is my life in Christ moving the body of Christ towards maturity? It begins with knowing, am I rooted and secure in my identity in Jesus? Do I know him? Do I belong to him? Am I yielding to him? Do I know that Jesus is safe, that even in my faults and in my failures, in my sin, that I can run to Jesus to be cleansed and forgiven and receive mercy and grace for help in time of need? And if we are secure in that, next question then is, are we actively making disciples? Are we actively engaging and helping one another grow as the body of Christ? That begins, parents, right in our home as our first disciples are our children. And that extends to our brothers and sisters to our right and to our left. We also know that gospel community is a relational community. We are not intended to do this alone. And if all the gospel community you get is here on a Sunday, it's not enough. Are you experiencing growth in gospel community? Through cross community, we do that through community groups and homes throughout the week, gathering together for deeper study of the word through Bible studies, coming together as smaller groups of men and women in discipleship groups for mutual accountability, fellowship, and discipleship. Ultimately, church, the question is, does my life reflect the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we continue in our time of worship, as we dwell on and meditate on these truths that you have presented before us today, God, I know how often I am tempted to be driven by performance or just to pursue my own sin. But God, you call us to walk in a manner that is suitable, that reflects what you have called us to, who you have called us to, and what you have called us to be. Father, we thank you for the empowerment of your spirit, that it is just not about do better, try harder, but it is about surrender. Surrender to you in faith and trust that your ways are not our ways and that your ways are best, that you are a good God and you have good for us. We thank you for the security that comes from knowing you, the security that comes from knowing that we can fall forward into your arms and that you will pick us up and dust us off and send us on our way once more in the power that you provide. So we just pray that these truths would sink deeply, even deeper into our hearts today. They would minister grace to us and help us to continue to pursue ongoing growth for your sake and for your glory. And Lord, now we prepare to turn our hearts and our minds to the celebration of the Lord's table. And as we prepare to do that, God, we 
first want to thank you for giving us this symbol, this gift of remembrance, of being called to reminder each and every week what you have accomplished for us, the beauty of the gospel. As we prepare to do this, God, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would survey our hearts, our minds, and our lives, that you would show us areas of our life that we need to surrender and yield to you. So God, would you give us the confidence of knowing that confession and repentance are safe because of your grace and mercy to run to you in that trusting that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you allow our hearts to rise in celebration of the fact that we are eternally secure in you and that we have that eternal hope in your son, Jesus. We pray all of this in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.